The New Testament reading is from 2 Thessalonians. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether that by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. The word of the Lord. Good morning again, everyone. It's great to be with you. I'm going to dive right in here and get started. Turns out on our last uh, sermon in this series on prayer, I must have had a lot more to say. So I've worked hard to try to get it down, but I have a few more words than normal. So just just a few. So bear with me. Um, But I'm going to talk fast and hopefully you can catch everything. But let me pray as we begin. Father, teach us to pray. Help us to use prayer as an avenue into relationship with you, believing, as Matt saying earlier, that, that you have moved into our orbit, into our lives. You have taken the initiation with your grace, and we love you because you first loved us. And I pray that we would express that love, that you, we would believe your love for us in our prayer life. And Father, we pray that you would guide us now as we reflect upon this passage, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. When I lived in Palo Alto, I heard the phrase elevator pitch quite a bit, and it seemed like everyone was involved in a startup. Someone was starting a company somewhere, almost every family, every relationship, and you had to be prepared to give your elevator pitch in case you met someone important, someone that could fund your company. You had to be able to explain in 20 or 30 seconds why your company mattered and why someone should be involved. Well, the elevator pitch was a little bit more ominous if you worked at Apple, which is like they call it the world's biggest startup. If you worked at Apple and you happened to find yourself on the elevator with Steve Jobs, you got very nervous and you were supposed to ask him questions quickly because he always would ask questions of his employees, whether he knew them or not, what are you working on? And you had 20 to 30 seconds to make him interested. And if he was interested, he remembered. And if he wasn't, in- wasn't interested, he remembered. I wonder, for those of us who are Christians this morning, what would our elevator pitch for Christianity be? If someone was to ask us, well, you live in Portland, seems a little odd to be a Christian, why are you a Christian? What would our elevator pitch, how would we explain it in 20 to 30 seconds? Supposedly the most central thing about you, if you're a Christian, something you've given your life to, how would you summarize it? Do you have a sense now, sitting here this morning, what you would say in those circumstances? What's the elevator pitch for Christianity? Every Sunday, we confess our faith at the end of the worship service, and though The language is a little bit different because many of the confessions that we use are quite old. They're sort of like elevator pitches. They're short summaries of what it means to be a follower 
of Jesus Christ. And one that we commonly use is the Heidelberg Catechism. We use it because not only is it really good, but it's one of the confessions that our denomination chooses to use. And it was written back in the mid-1500s in the city of Heidelberg, Germany, thus the name. And it's organized as a series of questions and answers meant to be read in public worship as a means of training people and teaching people what it means to follow God. And the very first one addresses what Paul is talking about this morning. And I realize I printed the wrong translation because the word here is good hope, not comfort. And comfort is what we're talking about. But question number one of the Heidelberg Catechism says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? The very first question of the catechism is about comfort. So they must have thought it was pretty important. Now, I was traveling this week to New Orleans with Nick, and we did a lot of fun things, and I've begun to age, and as I uh, travel across the country in those tiny little, uh, tiny little seats, my knees, if it's more than two or three hours, just begin to cramp, and I have such pain that I now will spend a little bit of money to upgrade to Delta Comfort, and it's a little bit more comfortable in those cross-country flights, and comfort in our Uh, lingo is something that makes life a little bit more palatable. It's something a little bit more pleasant or softer. And Nick and I happened to eat a whole lot of comfort food in New Orleans, uh, which was great, uh, but I am carrying a lot of it today. Comfort food is high-calorie, high-carbohydrate. It's not all that healthy, but it makes life a little bit more livable. It makes life pleasant makes you look forward to sitting down and having dinner. To the Apostle Paul, this idea of comfort was far more important than just making life a little bit more palatable. To the writers of the catechism, it was something, this word comfort, that lied right at the center of Christianity, of what it means to be a follower of Christ. The confession, of course, as I said, is 500 years old, and Paul is writing in the very first century. And so, if we were to put this question in a little bit more contemporary language, how might this question of comfort come across? Well, maybe we would ask ourselves, what makes life worth living? For you, not just theoretical, but for you, what makes life worth living? Notice the question in the catechism was very personal. What is your only comfort in life? Or maybe we would ask, what gives you solace as you think about death, something that all of us face face, no matter what our, our faith commitments are? What gives you solace as you think about death? What keeps you going when you encounter suffering and hardship and failure and disappointment? Where do you find a firm, stable identity? What gives you hope as you think about the future? Does your relationship with God grant you resiliency and peace in your everyday life? That's really more about what this question is getting at and what Paul thinks of when he thinks about comfort. And here's how the catechism answers it. This may sound familiar because we recite this every 12 or 13 weeks with question one. Listen carefully. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, 
but belong with body and soul both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation." Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. It's not exactly how we might say it today if we were going to sit down and write a confession or an elevator pitch for Christianity, but that's a pretty good one for how can life have meaning and purpose in a broken world. Now, of course, that question is rooted in what Paul is talking about in our passage this morning in 1 Thessalonians. Paul is thought of most often as a very systematic writer, the most systematic writer in the Bible, the most systematic theologian of the Bible. But even for him, we see in this passage that the difference between believing theology and living theology virtually collapses. There's virtually no difference. Meaning and application, that is what we recognize as this passage means this and so I live in this way, are so intertwined that Paul would say, I believe, that if you cannot live out a certain doctrine or belief, then it is virtually useless and you haven't understood it correctly. Look at our text this morning, verses 16 and 17. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself And God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and deed. Do you see how the indicative and the imperative is so intertwined? The this is who God is and who you are, are, and now this is what you're supposed to do. The difference between those almost collapses. They're always intertwined. Now, this passage, too, may sound familiar to you because we use it fairly often as a benediction. At the very end of the service, when I put up my hands and I say, this is what God has to say to you as you leave this room and enter back into your daily life, this is God's benediction, His good word to you. And as an agent of His church, I'm pronouncing God's steadfast love upon you and telling you that all of these truths that we have been talking about are not theoretical, but they're meant to guide you into the world and meant to, we're meant to exercise these truths in our daily lives. Likewise, Paul is using this as a blessing, a pronouncement of God's good word upon this church at Thessalonica in the form of truths about who God is and what He has done on their behalf. But you see, Paul is not just pontificating theology. Doctrine doesn't live up here and out there, but it is the means of life, and there's a task that is attached to it. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the tradition that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Hold to the tradition. That 
seems a little odd, maybe off-putting, because traditionalism can be one of the most off-putting virtues or practices of the church. Jaroslav Pelikan, who is a professor long time at, of church history at Yale, he says this in a very famous lecture, tradition lives in conversation with the past while remembering who we are, when we are, and where we are. Traditionalism supposes that nothing should ever be done for the first time. So all that is needed to solve any problem is to arrive at the supposedly unanimous testimony of this homogenized tradition. And this is the the killer quote. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition, as Paul talks about it, isn't just a time-tested practice or way of doing things. It's not just one theological tradition in all of Christendom. Tradition for Paul is the very core of Christianity. That's what he is saying, hold on to. Stand firm in grace. Stand firm in the work of God on your behalf in the gospel. That God came into the world with a word of welcome. And you're to stand in His finished work. Hold on to it. The first Superman movie, if you remember this, 1978, Christopher Reeve. This was actually the first PG-13 movie that my kids ever saw, and it was a little bit by accident, and this was eight or nine years ago. So they they were quite young for a PG-13 movie, but I didn't know it was one because when I saw the old Superman, it was fairly tame and maybe a little bit too earnest for our, you know, generation before Batman and Superman got very dark and sort of broody and mean. This was a very happy Superman. He's very sincere, but I hadn't noticed when I picked up the DVD, I was so excited to show Nick and Oliver this movie, I had noticed that I'd bought the director's cut. And so they're seven and nine, maybe, and the director's cut is just a little bit different than the original that I saw. And so my boys, of course, thought it was hilarious, and they had to call my dad, their grandfather, and brag about the fact that I had shown them a PG-13 movie far too early, and they were far too young to see it, but they thought it was hilarious. Well, in this first movie, Superman's first appearance is saving Lois Lane. Anyone remember this classic scene, the helicopter on the top of the Daily Planet, and it starts to take off, and the runners get caught in the electrical cabling, and so it starts to crash, and Lois Lane is hanging out from the seatbelt through the helicopter door over the grounds 50 stories or so below. Well, then she loses her grip, and the camera is watching her fall, and she's got this, you know, scream and this terrified look on her face. But fortunately, it's quite a tall building because Clark Kent has time to walk out of the Daily Planet and see what's going on and walk over to the telephone phone booth. If you're 17 and younger, ask me what that is later and I'll tell you. But he walks into a, a telephone booth and puts on his super suit and he flies up the side of the building. All of this is Lois Lane is falling to her death. And of course, he catches her. And 
she looks at him like, who are you? Because no one has seen Superman yet. And he said, don't worry, ma'am, in his classic Midwestern Boy Scout type of affectation. Don't worry, ma'am, I've got you. And she says, because she hasn't seen Superman, this isn't very comforting. She's still in midair. Well, you've got me, but who's got you? No one's got Superman because he has superpowers. He can fly. And later in the movie, you see Lois Lane willingly stepping off the edge of a building, simply holding on to Superman, because by then, she has not only heard about him, but she has experienced the fact that Superman can actually carry her. He has superpowers, and he's trustworthy, so he's not going to drop her. Paul says, stand firm and hold on to the tradition, the teaching that there is only one person that can carry you in life, that can lift all of your burdens, who will never leave you, who will never forsake you. Hold on to the one who can comfort you when you're hurting. So, back to these hypothetical questions that we ask. What makes your life living? How could we answer that one? Well, that God cares for me, and He wants me to experience His sustaining love. What gives you solace as you think about death? The answer that Jesus conquered death, hell, and the grave, and He actually grants unto me His victory. Question, what keeps you going when you encounter suffering and hardship and failure and disappointment? Answer, that God Himself suffers, that He cries tears with me, that He sits with me in my heartache, and He is powerful enough to bind up my broken heart. Question, where do you find a firm identity to move out into the world? Answer, in my identity as a beloved child of God, whose approval and embrace of me can never be challenged. What gives you hope, question, as you think about the future? Answer, that God has promised to redeem the world and usher in a time of eternal peace and comfort, and death is merely the doorway into that new world. Question, where can you find resiliency and peace in your everyday life? Well, let's think about this one for a moment before I just give you the answer. And oh, by the way, if you didn't write all those down, you can listen to them online. The sermons are there if you want to. Um, I don't know why anyone would want to listen to me twice, but if you really wanted that, you can go find it. Let's think about this for a moment. Where can we find resiliency and peace in our everyday life? You may know the answer. You may be able to write better answers than I just made up for those questions, but yet you still move into the world and find yourself experiencing anxiety and worry and fear. You don't find yourself resilient and peaceful. Well, how do we, how do we address that? How do we change that? That we know certain things up here, theoretically, but they're not actually shaping the way that we live and believe and feel out our world. Well, unfortunately, we've got to look at this passage a little bit because it seems a little bit conflicted. On one hand, 
it seems it's all about us. As we just talked about, stand firm, hold on to. You have the responsibility. You got to do it. You got to use your grip. You got to use your strength. According to verse 15, we got to do something to actualize this comfort, this peace. But as verse 15 wraps up, verse 16 seems to say it's not really about us and our doing whatsoever. It's God who takes the initiative. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may He comfort your hearts. Well, which is it? Do we have to stand firm and hold on to, and that's the key, that's the fulcrum, or is the responsibility entirely God's, that He moves into our life? He's always the initiator, the completer, the perfecter of our faith. Which is it? Well, even in Reformed theology, which is sort of known for standing upon the sovereignty of God and upon God being the one to take initiative, we love because He first loved us, the answer is still a bit of a both-and rather than an either-or. Nothing worth knowing, nothing worth knowing is ever purely cognitive. It can't just be downloaded into our brainstem. It has to be embodied. It has to be lived. It has to be practiced. Lois Lane, you see, wouldn't have jumped off this building with a man in a funny suit just because she had read about this guy in a cape flying around. That would be crazy and ludicrous. Of course not. But you see, she had been previously rescued. She had been previously, she had previously experienced, if you will, the salvation of Superman. And so she later chose to put herself under his care again, and to jump off a building, choosing to find ultimate comfort in the promises and presence of God rather than in the comforts of this world is a daily decision. It's a daily choosing to jump off the building with Superman. It's a daily putting ourselves in His care, in God's care. Yet at the same time, God gives us means of grace by which we are strengthened to where we are more willing to put ourselves under His care. Means of grace such as baptism and fellowship, the community of the brothers and sisters, the Lord's Supper that we do each and every week, public worship by which He moves into our lives with His grace and His mercy, where His promises become more realized and practiced and habituated and embodied. And there's one which sort of, as we end this series, marries these two ideas probably most evidently for us. It's hard to imagine how that happens in the Lord's Supper, but when we think about prayer, it's a little bit more clear how God's power and His actions interconnect with our prayer life and a decision that we make, that we choose to enter into relationship with Him through congregation or conversational prayer. And we, we realize, don't we, that 
even as we read all of these promises about how God ultimately moves into our life with comfort, that He's the prime mover, that we also have a daily decision to experience that relationship, to connect with that relationship. And if we choose regularly not to enter into that conversational prayer life, then our faith does dissipate. If you have been a Christian for more than a week, you have experienced that, of course. So, at the same time, however, it's not our action of prayer that is the key, that is the fulcrum, but it is God's power and trustworthiness that we access through prayer. Does that make sense? So, as we wrap up this sermon series, I want to do one quick thing as we end. I want to just pray through this passage with those things in mind, the both-and tension of God's sovereign initiation, but our response and choosing to live out of His grace and out of what He has done. So, I usually wrap up with a pastoral prayer, and so I want to do that now, and I'm just going to do that verse by verse, and we'll be done. How's that sound? So, verse 13, we ought to always thank God for you. We all always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. God, would you grant us thankful hearts that we are loved by you? Would you let us contemplate that at this very moment and throughout the day, would we come to the realization that the events of our day are the outworking of your great love? We thank you that you have rescued us, you have saved us, set us apart by your Holy Spirit. We believe in your truth. But even this, Jesus tells us, is by your calling and your initiation. Help us, strengthen us as we go through times of doubt and unbelief. And then verse 14, he called you into this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, we stand amazed that your call into the world isn't, or your coming into the world isn't a threat, but it's a movement of grace, that your gospel, that your good news is a word of welcome. Would you humble us with the thought that the God of the universe chooses to share his glory with us and let us live in such a way that gives evidence of your glory? Verse 15, so then, brothers and sisters, stand firm. And hold fast to the teachings passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. These words tell us that we have been brought into a new family, that we have brothers and sisters here. Help us to exhibit love and grace and forgiveness in this family. And think of our family here at InTown as a primary community. Help us together to stand firm and hold fast to the teachings that you came into the world not with a sword, but with a word of comfort. And then verse 16, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us by his grace give us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Lord, let us never be content simply to believe, to merely know certain things about you, but let us live by them and into them. Would you encourage us, strengthen us, and propel us into good deeds and good words, first to the brothers and sisters next to us, 
but also to the world around us. Let us have hope as we leave this place. Let us have an infectious joy founded upon the fact that you have loved us, you love us now, and you will always and forever love us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.